and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Again, this week we're just going to look at one verse. Remember what we said about these, this series of loosely connected uh, exhortations in Romans 12. They're, they're meant for us just to read one at a time and just soak it in and meditate on it and kind of wring it out for, for all it's worth. And so we're going to do that again this week. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. God's word says this, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let's pray to the Lord together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to be with my family of faith and to know that they love you. To know that we are in unity together this morning, not here this morning because we feel guilty if we're not, not here this morning because it's some kind of obligation that we have to check off of our list, but for two reasons and two reasons only, that we love you and we love each other. Oh God, how sweet is that? How wonderful is that? Certainly, 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 that is why Christ has come, that our hearts might be turned toward you and that our hearts might be turned toward one another. And so, Father, my, my prayer is, is that you would stoke that fire, that you would fan that flame, that, that the flicker that is in our hearts right now would be set ablaze and that, God, our love for you would become consuming in every sense of the world and that our, our love for each other would be a, a fire that spreads to all of the relationships in our lives that increases our joy and our depth and our, our connection with one another. Father, I pray sincerely for people who are here this morning that feel lonely. I pray that you would draw near to them, that they would sense your spirit. I, I pray, Father, that you would send a brother or sister in Christ and that they would just cross paths at the right time and have a conversation and be reminded that we are not alone. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would make us stronger in our ministry to each other. As, as Andrew just read from 1 Peter 2, oh Lord, we are a royal priesthood, all of whom are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so Father, you have called for us be, through the Spirit as priests to care for each other and to minister to one another and to take care of each other. And so Lord, my prayer is, is that we would become effective ministers rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and weeping with those who are weeping. We come to you now together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if you ever watch a, an Olive Garden commercial, you know what they're saying is, right? Welcome to Olive Garden where we treat you like family, right? Where we treat you like family. But of course, you know, when you walk into Olive Garden, you go through the front door and immediately you know you're not family. Why? Every time you go, they ask you for your name. Every time you go, they ask you for your name. They take your name and they write it down and then they pretend like they've known you for years. They pretend as though you're long lost best friends or, or that you're cousins or aunts and uncles or something. And but, but you come in and they, they take down your name and they go and they seat you at your table and, and they're all smiling and they're all friendly and they're all nice. And they bring you out your boiled noodles that they warmed up in the microwave. 
And they slide it onto the table and everybody's pleasant and there's no drama and there's, there's no problem. As a matter of fact, once you finish eating, you have to leave them a little something, something, but you don't have to clean up anything. It's a mess, but it's not your mess. It's a problem, but it's not your problem. And you leave it right there. The CEO, he comes on your television screen. Maybe his picture is even in the restaurant, and he looks like a nice enough man. And, and he smiles as though he is your, your dad or your grandpappy. His teeth are, are a little too white to be comfortable with. But the truth is, you don't know him. He wants you to feel like you know him, but you don't know him. You never get close enough to know what his vices are. You never get close enough to know what his problems are. You never get close enough to be on the receiving end of his wrath or of his temper. You, you, you never hear him talk negatively about someone else. You never see the way he berates the people that work for him or the way that he talks down to his wife or the way that he makes crude jokes. You, you're not around any of that. You see a version of him, but you don't really know him. If you go to any Olive Garden on any exit of the interstate, you're liable to get a similar experience, aren't you? You're, you're liable to walk in, they're going to take down your name, they're going to pretend like they know you, they're going to seat you at your table, they're going to smile at you, you're going to have the picture of the CEO, they're going to bring you out your noodles, you're going to get to leave the mess, you're going to go about your way, and you're going to think, man, that was a, a, pretty, a pretty good experience overall. But you know, it's entirely different when you show up at your grandmother's house, isn't it? your grandmother's house, you don't go through the front door, you go through the back. Only salesmen and Jehovah's Witnesses come through the front, right? You come in and your grandmother, she doesn't write down your name. Your grandmother throws her arms around you and acts like she's never seen you before and she may never see you again. And she pulls you close to her and you smell her perfume, the same perfume that you can remember her wearing all of your life. And then you know what she does? She puts you to work. You don't get treated like a first-time guest every time you come to grandmother's house. You come to grandmother's house and you help her set the table. And you, you come and you sit around and, and you hear her tell the same old stories while you're putting out the same old dishes and using the same old silverware that you've been using for generations. Everybody gathers around the table. And around that table, over the years, there's been people that have been angry and got up and left. There's been laughter that's poured out as you've told those old stories or maybe thrown in a new one. You've gathered around that table as you've brought new babies home from the hospital and you've gathered around that very same table after funerals where there's more food there than you can eat. You come at that table and there have been times in which uh, engagements have been announced at that table and there's been other times in which through tears someone's announced the end of a marriage. You've gathered around that table before you've sent men off to war. And you've been at that table when they've come back home again to celebrate. You've oohed and awed and cried and wept. You've been mad and angry and irritated. But then there's that table. There's that table. It's messy. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of drama. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of problems. It's a lot of beauty, it's a lot of glory, it's a lot of wonder, it's a lot of significance, it's a heritage, it's something that matters. Oh, brothers and sisters, I worry that in the church in the 21st century that we're settling for Olive Garden when Jesus purchased us our grandmother's table. 
I worry that we're settling for similar experiences along the various exits of the, of the interstate where we can go and there is no mess and there is no drama and they write down our name and they treat us like a first time guest every time we come when the truth is we have been called together as a family to get upset with each other and to get grumpy with one another and to cry with each other and to celebrate with one another and to, and to have joy and to welcome new babies and to mourn when children pass too young and to go through cancer together and to to come and to, to, get, to get into the weeds with one another. They see, we've been called into a family by Christ. A family has been purchased by Jesus. And it is a family through which we go through thick and thin with one another. Ups and downs, good and bad, sad and joyful together. And that's what Romans 12.15 is about. That's what Romans 12.15 is about. Remember... The primary context with which we're dealing with here is what it means to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the church. How we connect with one another. That the goal is not that we would come to an experience once a week. The goal is not that we would come and be able to feel good about our day. The goal is that we would be drawn into a family as we are drawn near to Christ. And being drawn into that family, we would be transformed more into who Christ would have us to be. That we would make one another stronger and better sharper and more sanctified, more spirit-filled, spurring each other on, that we would cry and celebrate and laugh and cut up and carry on and be patient and forgive one another as we press on. The way I want us to understand Romans 12, 15, I want us to look at it, first of all, from the big picture, and then I want us to kind of zoom in and look at it from a more microscopic level. There's two exhortations there. There's an exhortation to rejoice, and there's an exhortation there to weep. And I want us to see that from like the macro level, like how do those fit together? What's he exactly trying to see? But then I want us to see that are embedded between each one of those, embedded within each one of those exhortations are these impulses that he's seeking to address in the lives of sinners. So the first thing I want us to do as we look at the big picture principles, I want you to see that we are to respond to each other's experiences as if they were our own. We are to respond to each other's experiences as if they were our own. I want you to think about this, these words rejoice, rejoice, and weep. Now, now, the word rejoice, what does it bring into your mind? It brings into your mind feeling, doesn't it? So does weeping. That it brings into our mind something that, that we feel deep within us. Some, something that arrests our spirit. Something that, that unsettles us. Something uh, in, in the uh, rejoicing side. Something that, is, that, that upsets us in a joyful sense. That, 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 doesn't, that means it lets us know this isn't just another occurrence. This isn't just another run-of-the-mill day. This isn't just another run-of-the-mill experience. This is something wonderful. This is something joyful. This is something exciting. And weeping is the same, but in the inverse, right? That, that it upsets our spirit in a negative sense. That there is sorrow and there is grief and there, there's something that is, that is deep within us. But it isn't just something that you feel. The rejoicing and weeping are not just something that you feel. They're something that you show, aren't they? They're something that you show. That in other words, rejoicing is a joy that you feel so deeply within your bones. that so, so upends your uh, sense of emotion that it is then expressed in, in, in maybe a shout even or in, in laughter or in 
praise or in, in glorifying the Lord and in, in celebrating in a high five, you know, in a raising the roof kind of moment. Like it's something that you kind of let come pouring out of you, right? And weeping is the same. It's not just to have sorrow. It's sorrow expressed. It, it's it's sorrow put on display. It's, it's sorrow shown. It's, it's to, be, to be grieved by something and to be, be arrested by something. So much so that you, like Peter, when he, when he locks eyes with the crucified Christ, you, you weep bitterly over the condition, right? You, you weep bitterly over the circumstances that you face. And so what Paul is doing is he's fleshing out what it means to love one another the way that Jesus has called us to love each other. Jesus has told us that the second greatest command is that we would love one another as we love ourselves. That we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And then he says the new one, which is an extension of that second greatest commandment, the new commandment that he's given us, John chapter 13, is that we would love one another. So there's a, a real sense in which what Christ is calling for in the church is that there would be this preeminent love among the body that would, we would care for each other and rejoice with each other and grieve with one another and weep with one another as though those experiences were our very own. As though those experiences were our very own. So what he's calling us to is he's calling us to respond to our experiences, to our joys, to our sorrows with the same level of intensity, with, with the same sense of, of weightiness, with the, with the same reaction of zeal that we would respond to if those experiences were our very own. And that within us, that creates an energy, that zeal, that passion, that, that sorrow, that, that, that gravity, that that it creates this energy inside of us that comes pouring out in display and demonstration and expression. For instance, imagine what it would be like. Some of you don't have to imagine. Some of you have been there. When all of a sudden, you know, like you start noticing that things in your body just aren't quite right and you can't put your finger on it. And you're having a difficulty kind of understanding it and you, you dismiss it for a little while and you think this is nothing, you know, I'm just getting older or I'm just whatever, I, I worked in the garden too hard. And, but then things just kind of continue to get weirder and weirder and just, they're just not right. And so finally you break down and you go to the doctor and you're like, I know he's just going to tell me, you know, like you're just an old wuss, you need to suck it up and get, get over it, right? Um, but you go and they run this battery of tests and it comes back and the doctor says, cancer. And there's this inward just grief and sorrow. But it's not just inward grief and sorrow. What do you, you weep, don't you? You know that now there is a sense of loss in your life that, that is inconceivable. That, that you're facing something that, that you never would have dreamed you might have faced. You, you had dreaded it. You knew it was a possibility. But you always thought maybe you would kind of skirt around it and not have to deal with it. And, and you started thinking about how am I going to tell my kids? Or how am I going to tell my husband or my wife? How am I, how, how, what does this mean about work? What does this mean about the future? Does this, what is chemo going to be like? What is radiation going to be like? And your, your mind is reeling and you're inwardly filled with grief. And it is a grief that creates such energy inside of you that it comes pouring out of you. And so what Paul is calling us to is to feel the weight of that diagnosis when it's not our own, when it's someone else's. To, to 
be able to empathize and place ourselves in, in their shoes and as if we were there in the appointment room with them and that we were the ones getting the diagnosis, that, that we would feel that sense of sorrow, that sense of loss, and, and that sense of, of being overwhelmed and the, the uncertainty of the future, and that we would express that in unison with them as that creates energy and pressurized within us. Think, think of it from the other side. A number of you. I've gotten uh, prayer requests. You know, you'll send me a text, which, which I'm, I'm so honored by. You'll say, we're, we're, we really want to have a baby. Would you, would you pray with us? We're, we're finding a lot of complications along the way, a lot of difficulties being able to have a baby. Um, but, but we just really want to have a baby. And, and, and you go through all of the just agony of infertility and, and you go through all the tests and all the procedures and, and, and you try to take all the measures and all the steps and, and one month after the next, you're, you're kind of le- living and, 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 and it just keeps coming up empty. It keeps coming up negative until that positive test finally comes. And when that positive test finally comes, what happens? It's almost like it happens so fast that that you really can't differentiate uh, the the truth. But but your mind starts reeling as you see it. And it's like you're you're so overwhelmed by the reality that you almost can't process it. And it almost doesn't feel real. And then it settles into your heart. And as it settles into your heart, your heart becomes so filled with joy and excitement and zeal and passion that it just explodes out of you. And you shout and you throw it up in the air and you, you start thinking of, all the different ways that you're going to tell all of your family and you start thinking about what the nursery is going to look like and then you start picturing your little baby on their wedding day and then going off to college and, and you haven't even seen the little person on the screen yet, right? Like, but you're, you have just imagine just, just picturing them all this thing because it's been such a long time coming. I mean, you don't just read the test and move on about your day. You don't just meet, read the test and feel good about it. You read the test and you shout, you rejoice, you're ecstatic. What Paul is calling us to is to share in that experience. To feel it like that new mother feels it. To express it with the same intensity, with the same energy, with the same excitement that that, that, that new daddy is experiencing. As he, as he tells you, as he tries to act tough, but he's really like trying to, like wanting to explode and like just go crazy, right? You've seen this before? That, that, that this idea of us coming to be together as a family is the idea of experiencing not just the highs and the lows and the ups and downs, but experiencing them in intensity, experiencing them in like energy, experiencing them with full expression. It's to, to know it, to feel it, and to show it, to express it. If you, if you think about these words, weep, rejoice, uh, weep and rejoice, these are full bore, like no holds barred, high energy type words, right? Like, like to rejoice is to shout, it's to, it's to praise, it's, it's, it's energetic. To weep is sorrow's most energetic expression. And so that's what it's calling us to. To illustrate this, you can think about an instance in Jesus's ministry. Mary sends word to Jesus that Lazarus is, is dying and Jesus doesn't get there in time and everybody's all upset about it and it's a couple days later, right? And everybody's sad because their brother Lazarus has, has died and we get this really profound glimpse into the heart of Jesus. John chapter 11, I have it up here on the screen. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jew had 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? I want you to frame up. So why is it that Jesus wept over someone that he knew he was going to raise? You ever thought about that? Isn't that strange? Jesus is going to see Lazarus, and Jesus already knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He already knows he's able. He already knows that he will. He already knows all of this is going to take place. And so certainly he, he loves Lazarus, and certainly he's sad that, that Lazarus is, is lying there dead. But, but he knows that Lazarus, in a matter of minutes, is not going to be dead anymore. So why does Jesus weep? Why does Jesus cry? Well, it tells us why he cries. Jesus saw her weeping. Jesus saw her weeping. Jesus saw the Jews weeping. He saw their pain. He he, he saw what they were struggling with. What Jesus saw was was the effects that sin was having on Lazarus, certainly, but the effects of sin and the curse of this world was having on those that he loved, those that loved Lazarus and those that Jesus loved. And seeing the effects of sin and seeing the pain and the sorrow in them, it moved Jesus, right? So he saw it, and then he was deeply moved. In other words, if we were to place this in the language that we've just been using, Jesus saw it and then Jesus felt it. Jesus felt it. The Bible is never afraid to prescribe feelings to us and to even command feelings out of us. Jesus sees it and he's deeply moved. He feels it. And then what does he do? He doesn't just feel it. He shows it. He shows it. You can't get this idea of stoic emotionless, expressionless masculinity from Christ. You do not look like Jesus when you plod through worship as a tough guy that is afraid to lift up his voice and his expression to the Almighty God. You do not look like Jesus when you come and sit on the pew beside a grieving mother or a grieving wife or an excited new dad and pretend as though it's not as horrifying or as difficult or as exciting as they make it out to be. It is like Jesus to get right there into the midst of the sorrow, to get right there in the midst of the pain, to get right there in the midst of the excitement and to be moved with the same energy, to be deeply moved within. It's, it's this idea of, of having your stomach turning over inside of you, this, this a phrase deeply moved. And it's to let that come pouring out of you in a rush of emotion the way that Christ did. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You see, your response to the experiences of others is a litmus test of your love for them. Your response to the experiences of others is a litmus test of your love for them. That the way that God intends for his saints to relate to each other, the way that we're intended to to be in a, a family together is what we see here out of Jesus with his disciples. That we're supposed to climb up onto the mountain with one another and shout praise on the mountain and celebrate on the mountaintops of life. And then we're supposed to rappel down into the pit just the same and weep with one another and be filled with sorrow toward one another. That we aren't to go through cancer alone and we 
aren't to go through the new birth of a baby alone, and we aren't to celebrate marriages and weddings alone, and we aren't to, to mourn and grieve the loss of parents alone, and we don't face cancer by ourselves, and we don't face paralysis by ourselves, or car accidents by ourselves, or addiction by ourselves. We do that together, and we don't enjoy the graces of God and the kindness of God alone either. We do that together. We're a family. Through thick and thin, we're together. On the top of the mountain and the bottom of the pit, we're together. We're together through it all. See, you want to know who loves you? Or at least who you feel loved by? Think about those people who your smile brings a smile to their face. You think about those people who are quick to celebrate with you. When you go through something good, the, the people that are quick to call you and check on you when, when all hell has broken loose in your house, those are the people that you feel close to, isn't it? Those are the people that you feel loved by. But let's be careful. As we start stacking up the names of all the people who don't call or how few of the people are who do, let's remove the plank out of our own eye and ask, who feels loved by us? Who feels loved by us? Who is it that we're calling who is it that we're checking on? Who is it that we're joining down in the pit or celebrating with on top of the mountain, man? That's our expression of love toward them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Join one another and feel what we feel and express what we express. And let's do that together. But then there are these two impulses that are embedded there within these two impulses that are embedded there within. The first impulse I want you to see is that we need to resist the impulse to resent each other's joy. We need to resist the impulse to resent each other's joy. Why is it that Paul has to tell us to rejoice with one another who rejoice? Like, doesn't that seem like that should just be easy? Like, it, it ought to be somebody that we love has something good going on and we jump right in the middle of that good that's going on and we begin to celebrate with them. But what's our first impulse? Well, I didn't get one of those. Right? Our, our, our brother in Christ gets a promotion, and maybe we work at the same Honda plant. We're like, well, I've been here longer than they have. Why didn't I get a promotion? Right? We're all, our brother in Christ makes the, the golf team, and we don't make the golf team, and we're like, okay, but I didn't make it. Right? There's something about when other people get something that it reminds us of what we don't have. There's this impulse in the nature of sinners that when we see someone else succeed, it makes us feel like a failure. When we see somebody else doing well, it feels like we're doing poorly. When we see someone else advancing, it feels like as though we aren't advancing as fast as we ought to. We begin even comparing ourselves sometimes to them. Well, I'm better at this, and I'm better at this, and I know I'm a nicer guy than them, right? How, how is it that I don't get what I deserve? And what's amazing about this and what's stark about it is that this is actually a call to joy. And it's a call to joy that leaves us fueled in bitterness. You see, it's like Jesus takes and puts a ladder. A ladder. So that we're able to go and climb up onto the mountaintop with one another, with, with Andrew and Daniel and Cindy, and be able to celebrate when something good happens in their lives. But instead of climbing up the ladder to be able to join them in their celebration, we put a ceiling there. We limit the capacity. We govern our own joy, in other words. I can think about 
I, I had a, a, a cousin, my cousin Chase, many of you know him, and we grew up like brothers, right? And like, as we got into the teenage years, we wanted what every country redneck boy on earth wants. We wanted a truck. You know, the bigger, the better, the, the wider, the fatter the tires, the better, you know. And so neither of us got one when we turned 16. And honestly, it became like an arms race, like the Cold War. You know what I mean? Like, like who would get the first truck, the biggest truck, the baddest truck? And he won. He won. And I can remember being like, like way old enough to know better, right? Like 18, 19 years old. And I remember exactly where I was when I saw it. And that's, that's sad, isn't it? Like to this day, I remember exactly where I was when I first learned that Chase got a new truck. It was a white Dodge, and he pulled up to Pine Glen Camping Ground where we were all going to be camping together. And he pulled up, and you know what my first reaction was? It should have been I was happy for him. should have been I was excited for him. I should have went and gave him a high five and said, man, that is awesome. I am so pumped for you. I didn't even want to ride in it. I didn't even want to ride in it. Like, I, wanted, I was so mad. I was pointing out, like, yeah, I see a little rust down there, you know. I, yeah, I think those tires got to be replaced pretty soon. Did you get them checked out? That's awful. And it's 100% the truth. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we outgrew that? But we don't, do we? We don't. As you mature in Christ, certainly, hopefully, those experiences become more spaced out and you're able to celebrate more with others than you were able to celebrate at, four, at first. But the truth is, is that throughout our lives, there is this tendency, there is this impulse within us to respond in resentment toward people who get things that we think we ought to have or that we badly desire. There is a, there is a tendency toward envy and covetousness and jealousy toward those that we ought to be celebrating with. What happens is it puts a capacity limiter, a governor, a ceiling over our own joy that limits the amount of joy that we can have in our own lives. That we have a tendency when we struggle with infertility to celebrate those that are having new babies. We have a difficulty when we struggle with singleness and we don't want to be single and we are single to celebrate with those that, that are our friends and people that we love that get married. There can be a tendency if we have poor health to... to celebrate those that apparently are the same old age or older than us and have taken less care of their body and have better health than we do. If our kids rebel and we feel like we did all of the right things and we have someone else who, who seemed like they half-heartedly parented all the way through and their kids remain faithful, we, we sit and we wonder and we think, Lord, why? Why? And it builds and fills our hearts with resentment. Oh, this is not the way. This is not the way. What I want you to see is that there are at least two ways, two ways in which the gospel, by calling us together, shatters the ceiling on our joy. Two ways. The first way is the way that we've been talking about, that we are a good family. The gospel calls us together as a good family. I have Romans chapter 5 on there. I want you to notice this. For if while we were, sinner, were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Six 
times, the emphasis here is not on you have been reconciled. The emphasis is on we have been reconciled. This has been a family experience. We were the enemies of God, and now we are the sons and daughters of God. Now, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, In the letter to Philemon, I think this is really beautifully demonstrated. When Paul has, uh, he's, he's writing to Philemon, his brother in Christ, on behalf of his runaway slave, Onesimus. And he said, used to, you were slave and slave master, but now you're just brothers. Now you're just brothers. God has made you a family. And do you know what family does? Family expands your capacity for joy, doesn't it? Family expands your capacity, at least a good family does. It opens up more opportunity for you to be able to have joy in your life with family than without. And now we're going to talk about this in a minute. It brings drama. It brings hardship. It brings stress. It brings all of that. But it opens up and it raises the ceiling of joy in your life. You can think of it like this. If, if you're the kind of guy that was athletic in high school and you love playing baseball, and like one of the things that brought you great joy was to be able to hit a home run. You've got like a three-year window, man. You know? Like, um, if you're elite, you might have a six-year window. If, like, you're supernaturally gifted, you may have a ten-year window. But you've got like three years. If, if hitting home runs brings you joy, you've got like three years. Unless, unless you can learn to find joy in your son hitting home runs. And in your grandson hitting home runs. And you're able to see, and it's not you hitting it, it's not you getting the glory, it's not you getting the honor. But when you see your son following in your footsteps and hitting the ball over the park, it allows your, your spirit to become elated and to spring up and to, to cheer them on and to be able to share in the joy of that moment, right? And so it extends your capacity for joy over multiple generations. And I think that's a glimpse That's a glimpse of what life is supposed to be like in the church. All of us are in one generation or another. And if if our joy is limited to just our experiences, then our joy has a very low ceiling. But if if my joy is actually found in your joy, then now I'm stretched across every generation. And I'm able to experience joys that are way back in my past or that I haven't even reached into yet. For instance, my hope, my my sincere aspiration is, is that I never get married again. Amen? Like, I love this woman. I'm all in with this woman. But that wedding day was a joyful day. It was a joyful day. I, I, I remember almost every detail about it from me being late to us leaving the, uh, the ceremony. Right? But I'm never going to know that joy again, personally. But I'm doing premarital counseling right now with, with Ansley Winter and Michael Myrick, who, who are a part of our church. And I'm going to get to perform their wedding here in a couple of, a couple of months. And as, as they come in, you know what I'm able to do? I'm able to experience their joy in that moment. It brings me joy. I'm able to relive it. I'm able to enjoy all of the energy and all the passion and all of the zeal and all of the anxiety and all of the feelings and all of the emotions all over again. Because they are my brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm walking through them with it. Uh, uh, Derek and Heather Wright. I saw Derek this morning out in the hallway. He, he'd met here for a D group, and he, he'd been road hard and put up wet. Like he was tired. And 
they'd had a, an extended battle with, with infertility, and recently they just brought little baby Caroline home from the hospital, right? And she's not sleeping a whole lot, little baby Caroline's not. And so I, I, saw, I saw my man Derek, but man, every time I talk to Derek and Heather, as tired as they are and as worn down as they are, they're excited. They're excited. And I get to share in that with them. We probably not having many more kids. Like, like that's probably in the past, right? But I get to share in y'all having kids and you bringing home and being able to be a part of that and celebrating that. Every single morning, and I mean every single morning when I drive by Faulkner's Grocery, Tony Snyder is hooked up to a boat parked in the parking lot. Now, retirement's a long way off for me. But you know what? Every time I see that boat hooked up to that, that Chevrolet outside of uh, a Faulkner, it brings a smile to my face. I like to give him a hard time about it, but it brings a smile. And man, I'm excited for him. And there's a sense in which I get to share in the joy that he has. When John, like my youth ministry days, they're behind me. But man, when I see John able to lead young men and young women to Christ, I get to be a part of that. And I get to share in the joy and see the excitement on his face. Like we're in this together. And so our joy is able to be spread out from one another. And so now my joy is not limited to me. Now my joy can be multiplied by three or 400 times. You know, it occurs to me that the happiest people are the people that are able to be happy for others. The happiest people are those who are able to be happy for other people and for the wins in their life. We're not just part of a good family, though. We're, the, the gospel brings us into a glorious kingdom. The gospel brings us into a glorious kingdom. We see all of this brokenness and all of this pain, but what it's reminding us of is that this isn't going to last very long. And so when we see somebody rejoicing, it is a reminder that one day there is only rejoicing. One day there is no more tears. One day there is no more sorrow. And so right now in my life, sin may be having its way and pain may be having its way, but that day is fading out soon and there is a glorious kingdom being ushered in and I'm a part of that. John Piper says that when we see good in our lives or good in others, is to cause a reflex in our own minds to say, God is like this but better. The kingdom is like this but more glorious. And brothers and sisters, the good that we experience in one another's life is not meant to bring resentment and jealousy. Instead, it is intended to create in us a hope that enables us to sustain one more day because this is going away and it's going away really soon. We can make it one more day because there is joy right around the corner. But finally, I want you to see the last impulse and is that we are to resist the impulse to avoid each other's pain. We are to resist the impulse to avoid each other's pain. So we also have to ask, why is it that he tells us to weep with those who weep? It's because the human impulse is to de-stress and unburden our lives. If you want to have a Facebook post that can be shared a hundred times, just write about how you need to cut away all of the dramatic, stressful, toxic people out of your life. Find some way to word that and you'll get like 500 shares. Because everybody wants to do that. We want to avoid each other's stress and avoid each other's drama and avoid each other's problem like we're panhandlers on the street trying to get to the other side of the sidewalk. It's like we see it on a GPS and we try to get off and exit early before we come upon the wreck. But y'all, a step away from stress, a step away from people is a step away from Jesus. Jesus saw the crowd and he was moved with compassion for them. Jesus saw Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem and he went right down there into its midst where he would be crucified. 
Matthew 11 says that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, taking upon ours himself our sins, lowering himself to our condition and to our plight, to our drama, to our stress, to our burdens. We want to follow Jesus to heaven, but we have trouble following him to the cross. Oh no, brothers and sisters. The impulse to de-stress and to de-dramatize and to unburden our lives is an impulse to disconnect from each other. And very often it is this impulse to de-stress our lives that overwhelms the desire that we have to connect. We want to connect, sure, but we want to connect with people that are problem-free. And we want to connect with people that are burden-free. And we want to connect with people that are drama-free. And we want to connect with people that are stress-free. Y'all, who's left, man? Who's left? Because you can't connect with me if that's what you're looking for. I promise you. You can't connect with me. No, 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 no. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. I was at a conference a couple of weekends ago, and a man spoke of, it was really out of context. I don't even know what he was saying, but it it struck me as odd. He, he, uh, he He said, you know, kids will ruin your life. This is a pastor, by the way. I I thought inside, well, thank you, Mr. Optimism, you know. But the truth is, is there's there's a lot of honesty in that, right? Like, I don't know that I would say it just like that. I don't know that it's super biblical or whatever, but that's how it feels. Family increases stress. It increases your capacity for joy, but it increases your, your capacity for pain too, doesn't it? It hurts. It's difficult, it's hard, it's burdensome, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Think about what what these words, weep, mean. He says, weep with those who weep. Not give advice to those who weep. Not share counsel to those who weep. Not, Not fix for those who weep. Weep. Weep with those who weep. Not talk with those who weep. In other words, here's what he's saying. We could summarize all of verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 15 this way. Just be there, man. Just be there. Don't try to make it better. Don't try to fix it. Don't give cheap advice. Don't try to put band-aids on it. Where you find a crying sister, where you find an ailing brother, sit yourself on the couch beside them and just be there. Just feel it. Just express it. Just show it. Just allow yourself to revel in that moment and just be present. Be there. I've told you before. It occurred to me one day. I was, I was visiting hospitals, the previous church I served in. I had a hospital day. We had a whole bunch, it was a big church. had a lot of people we had to visit and things like that. And there was one particular day I went and I helped a family send their beloved dad off to heaven. I was there as I took his last breath and they saw it. We prayed and we sang and we wept. It was excruciating. But I walked out of that room and it was just so stark. Because that very same day, as I walked out of that room in that very same hospital, I walked up to another floor and I walked into a room where we were celebrating the birth of a new baby. Same church, same church family, same hospital, same day. See, every day I learned that day. 
is the worst day of somebody's life and it's the best day of somebody's life. And the way that we're called to minister to each other and to care for each other through thick and thin is to just be there and to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.